We're ready. All right. Thank you. So this morning, I want to begin with one of the best-known parables in the Christian faith. But we're not going to talk about the parable as such, but what comes before it. So we're looking at Luke chapter 10. And we're going to start with verse 25. And this is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we um, look at that, before we get into that itself, um, several of the verses that we're going to be dealing with today talk about the law. And when we talk about the law from a biblical viewpoint, um, most of the time it's not talking about um, judicial law or political law. When it talks about the law, it's talking about the Old Testament. And specifically, um, a technical term for the first five books of the Old Testament. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. And then the prophets come after that, and then the, the writings after that. But so when the scriptures talk about the law, they're talking about the books of Moses, first five books. So in Luke chapter 10, it says, Behold, a lawyer... This is an expert in the, this is a, a religious law. He is an expert, we call him a PhD in, in Old Testament. Um, so this guy stands up to put Jesus to the test. Okay, here's the motive. And this is the purpose of the question. So the lawyer stands up. Um, he is an expert in the law and uh, the, the law of the scriptures and the interpretation of it. And when people have questions about technicalities and what applies and what doesn't, this is the man they go to, one of them. And he stands up to test Jesus. And he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've heard that, or are going to hear that again, right? The rich young ruler. They're going to ask the same question, but from very different motives. This man, it tells us, he stands up in order to test Jesus. It's going to be uh, interesting, though, that both of them, the rich young ruler and this lawyer, end up wanting to justify themselves. And they're going to Jesus to ask him to justify. This is what I'm doing. Give me a pat on the back. So he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns it back to him. He says, what is written in the law? Because the guy is an expert in the law. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Because there's a difference in reading and doing. But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now that's a good question. And Jesus is very happy to answer those kinds of questions. But at the end of the thing, at the end of the, of the parable, about the Good Samaritan, he asked back to the lawyer, which of these three 
um, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So it's a putting it into practice. So I want us to focus this morning on the question that Jesus asked the lawyer. What is written in the law? What is written in the scriptures? How do you read it? So there, there are many different ways of reading scripture. And the underlying uh, assumption is everybody's reading it. If you don't, uh, you're going to be very weak spiritually. You've got no weapons. You've got no strength. You've got no guidance. You've got no comfort. You've got no hope. You've got nothing that's going to last. So it's important to our spiritual health to be in the Word daily, consistently, um, to have it in our hearts, in our minds, have it ministering to our spirits. Uh, Jesus talks about the washing of the water of the Word cleansing us and purifying us, helping us with our motives and attitudes. These are the things that we get from just being in the presence of the Lord and hearing His Word. And if we're walking in an active way with the Lord, it's not boring. It's not dull. It becomes our life. There are different ways of reading it, though, aren't there? And sometimes we spiritualize negative ways of reading scripture. One of the ways <clears throat> that we do that is we atomize the scriptures. You know, an atom is one of the smallest things that you can get. By this, I'm talking about uh, dissecting the word of God, analyzing it like a, a specimen in a laboratory. And there's nothing wrong with uh, reading systematically or reading um, in order to find out what's written there. This is what uh, most of us do, or many of us do. We're trying to get down to the bottom of what Christ says. But there's a different way of using the same technique. We analyze it. We become impersonally objective. We're seeking for information, not revelation. We become obsessed with a technique. In other words, we stand apart from the text to analyze it but never engage with it or allow it to engage us. Then it becomes an academic exercise. We get information, not necessarily revelation. If the scriptures are treated as just another tool for enlightenment or access to knowledge that is power, then we've committed a sacrilege. We haven't handled the word of God correctly. You know, there was a guy by the name of Simon Magus in the book of Acts chapter 8, he saw that there was a power of God behind the God's word and he offered money to buy it. And you remember Peter said, your heart's not right with God. There's a root of bitterness there and there is something wrong and unless you repent, you're lost. Now this was a man who had already given his life to the Lord and in many ways, had a radical change in his life as far as what he was doing. But now he's coming to approach the Word of God uh, as a commodity and wanting to buy it because he's in, 
infatuated with the power. Others are infatuated with the information. Others are fascinated with the way the God uses the language, different things like that, but never personally engaging in it. And so the Word of God becomes the letter of the law, and the letter of the law is dead. It's just words in a book. It's on the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to us that it becomes the creative, transforming Word of God. And so as we're studying, as we're sifting through the language and looking there, then it needs to be this openness, a responsiveness to what we find there. And so that's how God wants us to come and approach it. You remember Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, and it needs to be alive. And if it's alive, it will be active. Most living things, there's action going on. If you have newborn kids or little children, um, there's life there and there's a lot of activity. And so that's the kind of thing that should be going on within our life. The Word um, gets off of the book, out of the page, into our heart, into our life. So the man gives adequate and active information. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Later on, Jesus is going to say, these two things, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. If you get these two things right, um, you're on the right road. And it opens up everything else to us. We don't have to worry about all the different rules and regulations. If we're loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we're loving our neighbors as ourselves. All the law is going to be being fulfilled in our relationships, in our business dealings, in our things at home, in our relationships with one another. It's going to be there. So the second thing, another way that we treat Scripture, is oftentimes we try to privatize it. And um, by privatizing... I mean, we're using it for what we call inspiration. That becomes personal. Uh, it's not personal, but it's private. There's a difference between personal and private. Personal means that uh, God is dealing with us as a person. He's communicating with us. You can have communication and interaction. Uh, he's speaking, we're hearing. We're speaking, he's hearing. There's communication, communication taking place because we're created in God's image. And then we become responsible, able to respond to him. And when we're able to respond to him, then we are accountable to him for how we respond. And so that's personalizing. But when we privatize something, that means this, this is mine. It's for me. It's private. Do not enter. Not welcome. This is between me and God. It's private. And when we start doing that, unless the Lord tells us that, we, do, we become possessive and isolated and we withdraw from the common good for individual control or use of enjoyment. And so uh, it's you and me, God, against the rest of the world. 
That has nothing to do with what God is doing throughout Scripture. He begins working with individuals, but it's not for the individual's sake solely, is it? And what he's about is he's about creating a people of God. And so you have this group dynamic, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. Um, this is what he has called us to do, participation. Because in the, in the Godhead itself, there is communication and there is a sharing. There is a oneness of purpose and goal and will, but different persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's a living relationship going on within the members of the Trinity. In our homes, first of all, that's what it's supposed to be. The family is to reflect the Trinity as the individual reflects the image of God. Because there's this bond that's there. And so when we become possessive and isolating, we build walls and push everybody out. And we think maybe we're doing all right, but there's no interaction, there's no correction, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. And so this is, this is how cults and different things like this start. You get a guy going off doing their own private little thing, and they get, there's no balance there. And so that's part of what the body of Christ is, is we serve as a correction for each other, for one another, and accountability to one another. And so when we privatize Scripture, we abuse it in that way. Revelation, on the other hand, that's what draws us out of ourselves and our fiercely guarded individuality. And it guard, calls us out into a world of responsibility and community and salvation. It calls us out of our private little cell into the kingdom of God. It's interesting that um, in Second Peter chapter 1, he makes a statement about the biblical writers. And... What he says is this in verse 20. He's talking about God's Word. And um, let me go back to verse 19. We have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed. It's going to be confirmed in the body of Christ. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first... Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own, we would say, private interpretation. For no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God spoke to the individual person, but the ideas, the thoughts, the contents weren't coming from him. And the purpose of was not only to challenge and, and change the prophet, but that the prophet in turn can be the instrument of proclaiming that word. It's not a private word for just the prophet alone. It's meant to be shared. And so it's not the private interpretation that's important. It's the proclamation so that everyone will know what the will of God is. So it presents a bit of a problem in the church because we are part of a church that in, in many among us believe ardently in the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's Word. Um, but instead of submitting to it, we use it 
apply it, take charge of it endlessly using our own experience as the authority for how, where, and when we use it. Are you with me on this? We take it for good, good reasons we take it, but then what we do is we, uh, we make our own experience, my holy needs, my holy wants, my holy feelings becomes the standard by which we guard or measure the scripture and decide which part of it and when we're going to put it into practice. Which part of it and when, how we're going to use it. And so it all comes back to what I think, what I feel, what I want. Now that's not wrong to to seek after God for those things. But when that becomes the determining factor on how we take and apply the scripture, then we've just set up a religious kingdom of self, haven't we? I'm the one who decides. As you read through the scripture, God spoke, and uh, there were times, David, Jeremiah, these are two major examples. They both, whenever they proclaimed God's word faithfully, like he was wanting to do, like he was wanting them to do, they ran into difficulties with other people. It created problems to where they themselves were attacked because people didn't like what God was saying. If you don't like what God's saying, you can't get to God, but you can get to your brother. This is the whole point behind Cain and Abel. Cain was angry with God, but if you're angry to God, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) What are you going to do? But this man was acceptable to God, and he's weaker. And I'm angry with God and I can't reach him, but I can reach my weak brother. And he did. And he did to his brother what he wanted to do to God. He killed him. So David and Jeremiah both said, you can read it in the scriptures there. The word of God came, but I decided to keep it inside. I wasn't going to say it anymore. Every time I opened my mouth, I got in trouble. I'm going to keep it to myself. But he says, as I meditated, the fire burned. And Jeremiah said, I became weary with trying to hold it in, and I had to proclaim what God placed upon my heart. Paul says, woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel, because he's got a word of God that's burning in his heart, and he has to share it. It's not he deciding when and who to say it to. It's God. So we'll come back to this in a minute. A third way of reading scripture is for entertainment. Ever read it because you enjoy it? You know, in, uh, this may not be entertainment, but in some literature classes, they take parts of the Bible and require it as reading because it's good literature. Um, and so people will study the book of Job or Ecclesiastes because of the philosophy that's there you know, different things, and some people enjoy reading the Bible. Um, It's a pleasing experience for them, and it should be. But what I'm talking about entertainment is this, in Ezekiel 33, God's speaking to Ezekiel. He says, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word of the Lord is. 
and they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Entertainment. Like someone who sings well to plays an instrument. It's like going to a concert. And there are people that listen to sermons all the time, or they're, they're going from church to church, or from big meeting to big meeting. And they're getting all this information, all this input in, but it's almost like entertainment to them. And they'll sit and say, well, that was a good, a good speaker spoke well, or this was a good meeting, the, the spirit was good there. But they're never committed, and they never engage with, this, with the word of God. It's just entertainment. So they hear what it says. They may enjoy it. They may think it's, it's something that they'd like to know. Walk out the door and forget it. And it never affects how they live, how they think, how they respond. It's just entertainment. Religious entertainment. And so remember what Jesus told the lawyer. How do you read it? If you do this, you will live. So as we look at James chapter 4, the context, again, is your relationship with your brother. So it's the same context that Jesus was talking with the lawyer about in Luke chapter 10. And Luke, in James chapter 4, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel with each other you do not have because you do not ask you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so he goes on down and he tells them that they need to, to draw an eye to God. We're in verse 6. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, it's, remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to us, all right? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, what is he talking about? He's going to tell us here in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And it's the collective, brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's all of us. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law, the word of God, and judges the law. Because what did God say? Love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, 
love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we're speaking against our neighbor evilly, wrongly, we're breaking the law, the law of God. We're speaking against that law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. How do you read the law? Do we submit ourselves, humble ourselves under the word of God and say, Lord, speak because I'm ready to obey? Or do we sit in judgment on the law? I don't like that part. I'm not going to read it. This part is what I want and what I need. I'll read that. And I'll read that over and over and over again. Give myself a spiritual massage. You know, make myself feel good. But when it comes to commitment or challenge, I don't want to hear that. So I just don't read it. So the Lord comes and he speaks to us. And he speaks in a powerful, dynamic way. So what is our, our response supposed to be? As you read through the Old Testament, you find many times that God initiates the conversation. How many times have you been listening and God initiates the conversation with you? He will if we're listening. Many times he wants to speak to us, but we've got so much stuff, we never take the time to, to slow down and wait in the presence of the Lord so that we don't hear him. But God is wanting to speak to us. So when God speaks to them, uh, sometimes they're not sure who it is. Samuel was a small boy, didn't know God yet. And God was calling him by name, trying to speak to him. He thought it was Eli, uh, the guy in authority over him. So he jumped up and ran to find out what he wanted, middle of the night. Eli's an old man. He's waking him up. What do you want? I'm here. Eli says, I didn't call you. Happened three times. Finally, Eli, the priest, finally catches on. Oh, I think God's trying to talk to you. <laughs> God speaks to us in different ways. He gets our attention in whatever way is necessary to get our attention. You need to slow down. We're all busy. Take time and listen to what he says. Their response is, here I am. Um, Moses said that. Abraham said that. Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant hears you. God says, this is something I need to do. Um, who can we send to go? Isaiah's hearing God. God's dealt with his sin. And he stands up and he says, I'm here. I can go. That's interacting, allowing God to deal with us, submitting to the word that gives us the guidance and direction that we're asking for. In the New Testament, when the word was about to become flesh, God again chooses to work through people. We are his image, his representatives on the earth. That has never, ever changed. We are the image of God because that's how he made us. And so he speaks to this young girl, Mary, and he tells her about the birth of the Messiah in a miraculous way. Now, she doesn't understand because uh, 
it's not the normal way of doing things because God is becoming actively creative, a new creation here in this sense. And once, once she finds out what God's wanting to do, she still doesn't understand it. But her response, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Be it to me according to your word. It's a costly call on her life. There's going to be misunderstanding. People are going to judge her. And she has done nothing wrong. Matter of fact, she is walking right now in the presence of the Lord and she knows what the will of God is and she's making herself available. God, according to your will, you do that in me. Now later on, Jesus, as he's teaching the disciples how to pray, Lord's Prayer, that is a powerful powerful prayer. It comes from the Lord himself. He's telling us this is how you and I need to be praying. And right in the middle of it, not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, but yours be done. And again, it's not wrong, and we need to seek God for our wills, our needs, and our feelings. We need to, to work through those things in his presence. But that's not the determining factor here. That is not the determining factor here. So we submit ourselves to the word of God. We don't stand in judgment on it and decide what we're going to receive from God and what we won't receive from God. Jesus himself showed us the way. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they're about to arrest him and start the torture and the judgment and the mocking and the spitting and all the rest. He knows it's, it's now. The disciples are over here. He's asked them to watch and pray and they're asleep. Uh, they just had a nice meal. It's late, uh, comfortable, and they just, they just fell asleep. Jesus is over here pouring out his soul. My soul is sorrowful unto death, he told them. And he's over here in agonizing prayer. Have we been in that kind of prayer? Do we know what that's all about? And the feelings and all that other stuff is right there. He's just like us on the physical life. And he's crying out to God the Father. And he says, Father, you're God. If it's possible, any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's the feelings. That's the emotional part. Hebrews says he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses. And he's crying out to God from the weaknesses of the flesh, like us. But the bottom line for him is, nevertheless, this is my desire, this is my prayer, but not my will, yours be done. Not just words. He got up and acted on it. He lived out that prayer. So it's one thing to say, not my will but yours. It's another thing to live it out and to walk it like Jesus did. And so that's what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Not my will but yours be done. And as we read through the Scripture, as we submit ourselves to God's Word... The Word of God is living and active. Then the Word of God transforms us in that, in that place of prayer. 
And when he transforms us, we become different people with different motives, different attitudes, different actions. And then that informs everything that we do and think and are, how we relate to one another. We're not doing it now from the selfish needs, the selfish wants, the selfish desires. Now we're doing it in submission and obedience to God. And it is a transforming thing. It produces life. It creates hunger in lives of other people. It creates hope in the midst of depression. It, it gives us uh, a goal and a purpose and a meaning in life. And then we begin to look at each other in a very different light. Um, I think it was Teresa of Avalon. Uh, Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich said, I look at God... And I look at you, and I look at God. What she's saying is, when I look at God, I can see God in you. And that's how she looked at people. Because she had first looked at God. Pray, God, help me to see each other, one another, as you see us. Then we look at people differently. We look at every person differently because we have submitted ourselves humbled ourselves to the word of God to transform us and change us how do you read the word of God and it's a challenge for you and I to, to say Lord as we come before you we ask that your will would be done and not ours and as we bring our wants and desires and needs before you they are cleansed and transformed into the will and life of God. Let's pray.